following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right. Well, we're still in Second Peter. We will be for one more week. Uh, just a reminder what Peter's been talking about quite a bit in this letter to this particular church. He's been talking about true teachers versus false teachers in terms of the things that they say. He's been talking about true living versus false living, and that is, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, there are ways that it impacts your life, what the Bible calls fruit, that there's a response as your heart changes, your life changes. And so he's been talking, too, about be careful. There's false lives and there's true lives, that is, lives that are aligned with the will of God and lives that aren't. And this morning in the passage, he's going to remind us just a little bit about God, that God is faithful, he's true, he's trustworthy, and that we're not to be impatient if we don't quite understand what God is doing because God's at work even if we don't always see it in the moment. So that's the broader context for these verses. I'm just going to read through them this morning and then we will chat. So this is chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now, my dear friends, my second letter to you. In both of them, I have tried to inspire you to a sincere and pure way of thinking by reminding you of what you already know. Remember the words spoken earlier by God's holy prophets and the commandment that our Lord and Savior gave to you through your emissaries. That would simply be the prophets, the evangelists, etc. Above all, be sure to remember that in the last days, that's now, mockers will come. They'll be following their own desires and taunting you, and they'll say, what happened to the promised second coming of Jesus? Everything keeps going just the way it has since our ancestors fell asleep in death. Since the beginning of creation, nothing has changed. But when they make fun of you, it's as if the scoffers are deliberately forgetting that long ago when God spoke the word, the heavens came into existence and the earth formed from water and by water. The waters later flooded and destroyed that world. By the same word, the heavens and earth we see now are being reserved for destruction by fire, preserved until the time comes for the godliness or for the godless on the day of judgment. We talked about this a couple weeks ago because if you remember, I got some of this stuff out of order uh, about that day of judgment. Don't imagine, dear friends, that God's timetable is the same as ours. As the psalm says, With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about enacting his promise. Slow is how some people want to characterize it. No, he's not slow. He's patient and merciful to you, not wanting anyone to be destroyed, but wanting everyone to turn away from following his own path and turn toward God's. If you pick up notes, there's some footnotes there just having to do with how we understand this tension of it's not God's desire that any perish, and yet some do. That's a whole other subject I don't think I want to tackle in this particular sermon. Pick up the notes. Here's the bottom line for this section. It's apparently a contingent in the church, and I think in this context, it's probably fair to think of these mockers as some of the false teachers that were in the church who were saying, listen, one of the things Jesus said before he left was, I'll come back, but he's still not back. By the time 2 Peter is written, this is maybe 30, 40 years after Jesus had left the earth. Listen, he's not here yet. Clearly, he's not going to fulfill his promise. And so Peter simply uses two incidents from the Old Testament. Well, one is the creation of the world. The other is the flood. To say, listen, in particular with the flood, 
God said something was going to happen, and it took a while, but it happened. Just because it didn't happen right away or in the timing that people expected didn't mean that it wasn't going to happen. Turns out God's timing is different than ours. So this analogy of one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, I'm not sure it's intended to be put there for us to do math with it. I think the author's just making a point. What seems like an eternity for us is all part of God's plan. He, he wasn't lazy or somehow uninvolved just because it didn't plan, play out on our terms. I would phrase it this way. Just because a future expectation does not happen in our timing or in our way doesn't mean that God is absent, forgetful, or slow. In fact, I think kind of embedded in this verse but then talked about in the rest of Scripture is that these times of waiting are, are very important times. They might be more crucial than we realize. So I'm going to just suggest this morning there's two reasons that God allows us to wait, and that is, for one, for our maturity, and second, because it gives us opportunity. So here we go. Let's talk about maturity, everyone's favorite subject. So a couple examples that come to mind. One is the life of Joseph, who is probably my favorite in all of Scripture. So if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, when he's a kid, he gets these dreams, these visions, that one day he's going to rule his entire family and all his brothers will bow down to him. Joseph is remarkably immature and arrogant at this point in his life. So he goes, of course, and tells all his brothers, hey guys, uh, guess what? Down the road, you're all going to bow down to me. I will be your king and I will rule you. As you might expect, his brothers didn't take it well. And then he does it again, and his brothers get so angry, they sell him into slavery. So part of what I love about the story of Joseph is it reminds me that even the most immature and stupid of us while we're young, God could do something good with us. Joseph needed some time. And he goes to Egypt, and once again, if you're familiar with the story, he's falsely accused. He spends time in jail. He goes through a lot of turmoil and trial before he gets into this position of leadership. And by the time he gets there, he's ready. And I suspect one of the lessons we're meant to take away from that story is that if God needs to mature us, he'll mature us. Jesus waited until he was around 30 before he started his ministry. And he's the son of God on earth. And the Bible tells us what happens in that time of waiting. Jesus increased in wisdom, he increased in stature, health, and he increased in favor with God and with others. The apostle Paul, after he is converted, he spends 10 years preparing for ministry. Like he kind of disappears from the record for 10 years before he walks back in after having been trained. And I give you those three examples to suggest that years of waiting are not wasted years in God's economy. In fact, what we see as years of waiting are often not, uh, uh, let me rephrase that. What we see as wasted years of waiting in God's kingdom are never wasted. They are there for two things, at least, maturity, and then I'll talk a bit about opportunity. So I want to clarify a couple things about this, though. I don't mean that every delay or every time of waiting is because we're immature. If God was waiting till we were perfectly ready for the next thing for us, we'd never get there. So this isn't about that. Sometimes there are things that delay where we believe God is taking us in life or something we believe God wants to do for us, things out of our control, natural disasters. 
Maybe someone wants to build a home for foster care in California, and just as it's finished, the fire wipes it out. All right, that's just a natural disaster that has put a bump in the road. It might be sick relatives. It might be health issues. There's things that come into our life that delay these things. We believe God is pushing us toward. doesn't necessarily mean that God is doing that because we're too immature. The second thing is, I don't think we should think of this as punishment. If we're not ready for the next thing God has for us, God having us wait, that doesn't strike me as punishment at all. That actually strikes me as love. So when I coach basketball, let's say there's a player who could maybe be on JV, maybe could be on varsity, and I'm trying to decide which one do I play him on. And I realize if I put him on varsity, he's going to be overwhelmed. He really wants to play, but... He's going to be overwhelmed, and it might actually hurt his game. But if I put him on JV, lots of playing time, he's successful, he builds his confidence, he's ready the next year. Okay, I would hold that player back to JV, not because I'm punishing them, but actually because I care about them. And I recognize that in this situation, there's an opportunity to mature and grow so that when they get to this next place in their life, they're ready. So those times between where we are now and where God is taking us, I don't know the reasons. I don't know if it's waiting for maturity. I don't know if something else has come into our life. It, I don't know. What I do know is that it's an opportunity for us to grow in maturity and to look for opportunity, and that's what I want to talk about. Because I was a high school teacher, I've had a lot of conversations over the years, especially with kids getting out of high school, wondering what they're going to do with their life, or their senior year, they're working somewhere, say, in a fast food restaurant, and they know that's not what they're going to do, and it just feels like a waste of time. Or I've got a couple boys now who are either in college or have gone through college, and there's a lot of questions. What am I going to do when I get out of here? What happens if I'm prepared for this thing, and now I'm just in this spot where it feels like nothing's happening? I think God's gifted me and called me to do a particular kind of thing because I'm good at it, I'm passionate about it, I can tell it's making a difference in the world, but I'm stuck in this place where it just feels like nothing good is happening. So my typical question is this, how are you doing with what's in front of you? A couple examples. Someone says, I think I'm called to missions, but nothing is working out. I'm so frustrated so my question is, what are you doing with what's in front of you? How's your witness to your family? If you tell your family you want to go onto the mission field, are they surprised, maybe a little shocked, <laughs> because they've experienced you? How's your family doing as your mission field right in front of you? How, how's your coworkers, your schoolmates, your friends? What's it looking like? It's not like this is wasted time. This is time actually where you get good opportunity to prepare. You want to go far away and do something? Let's maybe look first at what's happening close to home. Uh, are you talking with, with, yeah, with all the people? Are, are you studying the Bible? This would be a key thing. We all have access to the Bible now. You want to be a missionary? Are you studying the Bible while you're waiting? That, that seems to be crucial. Uh, are you reading up on what other missionaries do? With the internet anymore, you can have access to all kinds of information. What does it look like? What should you be preparing for? What are your expectations? There's no reason for you to be spinning your wheels, actually. There's every reason to think of it as a productive time. Someone says, I think I'm supposed to work with kids, but I'm stuck at a desk job. All right, you volunteer at church. 
You could work with kids at church, I promise you. Every church loves to get volunteers who work with kids. <clears throat> Hashtag nursery. Um, but it could be older kids as well. Um, are you reading and studying about how to work effectively with kids? Once again, tons of information available that can be filling you up and preparing you while you are waiting. I want to be a social worker, not work at a restaurant. All right. Once again, what are you reading and studying right now? This will be a theme in all of these. What are you filling yourself with to prepare yourself for where you want to go? Uh, how's your heart for coworkers in need? Because if you're going to go into social work, you are going to be wrung out for the people that you work with. Those of you in social work know this. It is not an easy job. It's an emotionally demanding job, all right? What, what's it look like in your life now to be pressing into the lives of people who are in need in, in an appropriate way and starting to bear burdens and have deep conversations and understand what that emotional investment looks like? Are you reading what the Bible has to say about issues a social worker will face? Are you building your foundation so you can think about these issues as a Christian? I want to own a business instead of working for someone else. All right. What are you learning from the business you're working for? When my oldest son was doing an internship in college because he was a business major, uh, his internship put him in a business that was, frankly, terrible. And at first, it really frustrated, like, I'm not learning anything here. And then we talked about it. It was like, oh, no, you are learning a ton. <laughs> you're learning everything what not to do in a business. And once AJ got out of college and he got into a business, they've actually really appreciated and affirmed him because he learned a lot in a situation that actually looked like there might not be a lot to learn. So what are you learning for the business you're working for? Are you reading and studying about business? What's the biblical ethic for business owners? I'm thinking about getting into church ministry someday. All right, are you diving deep into scripture? You need that foundation. Are you getting mentored by someone in ministry? Are you staying caught up with church trends? Are you in an accountability group? Because we talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you are really genuinely called into some type of church leadership, oh, you need to be a person of integrity. You really need to be a person of integrity, not perfection, but integrity. So right now, what does it look like for you to be in a group where you are accountable, where you are bearing your life to people and saying, listen, these are my successes, these are my failures, I need you all to help me understand what God is calling me to, help me be strong where I'm weak, I need to get used to this repentance, forgiveness thing, because if I'm going to be in leadership, i, I got to figure this kind of thing out. Right? So none of this is wasted time. This is all opportunity to grow. And if nothing else, I think you get a chance to see who you are in the midst of frustration and adversity while you're waiting. Because here's the thing, and I, I think you know this, no matter where you go, there is frustration and adversity. Even if you get into this sweet spot of life that you, you're certain you were called to be in, there will be frustration and adversity. You're learning now how to handle that. It might seem minor, but you're learning now how to handle that. I'll go back to coaching once again. One thing I love about basketball is that it's about more than basketball. Basketball is a testing ground. For one, the adversity of basketball will bring out who you are. And it brings that out in a context of people 
who will help you figure out how to either address some issues or channel some things. It'll also then put you in situations where the going is tough. All right, do you learn how to press through failure and mistakes? Are they the kind of thing that will make you put your head down or will you swallow hard and go, okay, I'll learn from this and do better next time? Basketball is life. That seems a little bit like an overstatement. I just really like basketball. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's what I was, I was waiting for affirmation. Uh, basketball is a microcosm. Now, I could treat it just as a sport, but it gives opportunity for, to, for growth. And part of the reason I say that is because I've talked about this before. In my life, basketball was the thing that revealed a lot of me that was pretty ugly and also gave me a place to learn how to navigate that in a situation that for me, um, I was prone to arrogance and anger and all kinds of things, all right? I tried to keep walking back into that and learn how to grow because I know that if I can learn the lesson there, it's going to spill out over into the rest of my life also. So waiting, waiting gives you time to purposefully mature. And now here in my notes, I have no smooth transition, so I just wrote here, new thought. Here we go, new thought. I wonder if sometimes our questioning of God's timing or our perception that God's not as involved as we would like God to be or we feel like he's just not moving in us, I wonder if sometimes that's an avoidance of ourselves. I don't mean every time. Hear me out. I wonder if sometimes we want a quick fix because if we get a quick fix, we don't have to be honest about who we are. So what I'm asking you to do is consider this possibility. I, I wonder if these times of waiting are sometimes opportunities that God purposefully gives us where we have to settle into life with ourselves and get to know ourselves, and sometimes that's really uncomfortable. And then we either try to avoid it or we walk into it and we figure out how to surrender our lives more fully to Christ. So, once again, a couple examples. I'm ready for the next thing God has for me. Why isn't it here yet? Consider the possibility that God's not giving it to you yet because if he gives it to you now, you'll break it. So when we got our house, we needed to put carpet in the house. This was 20-some years ago. And when we went to the salesman, they asked a very important question. Do you have children and do you have pets? We said, why is that? Oh, because if you have both of those, you want the cheapest carpet you can get. <laughs> because your house is going to be a mess. Things will be spilled, you name it. You want to wait until the kids are older or the pets are out of the house before you really put the nicer floor down because your house just isn't ready for it yet. So once again, not a punishment, but yeah, you put that really expensive carpet in, you'll break it and you, you'll wish you hadn't done it. So carpet analogies might not be perfect for spiritual life, but I'm wondering, can we consider the possibility that God is making us wait because he wants to give us a good thing but if he gives us to it now, we'll break it. And so a God of love does not yet give it to us. He waits until we are ready to handle that thing well. And that is for our good. I've known from the time I was young, I was supposed to be, uh, fill in the blank here. Why isn't that happening yet? 
Well, consider the possibility that you aren't ready. Maybe you've not dealt with your anger. And where you're going, that's going to be a big deal, and you need to deal with your anger first. Maybe you haven't dealt with why it is you so easily take offense. Because where you want to go, you're going to have to be able to handle offense well, and you're not ready. And God loves you too much, and he loves the people you're going to work with too much to move you into that position at this point. Maybe you've never figured out how to stop talking and start listening. And where you want to go, that's going to undermine your work. And God knows this. So he gives you time to be introspective, to self-assess, to ask the question, is my life the kind of life surrendered to Christ so that he's working in me to build and change these things that that could be harmful to me or the others that could potentially be destructive? Am I taking this time of waiting to really press into that? So that would include things like prayer. I think it includes talking to friends and family and saying, how am I doing in this area? Is there something that you're noticing in me that might harm this thing I believe God is calling me to? So a couple weeks ago, we talked here in church about stewarding other people. So... Sheila and I and Vince have done this a couple times, actually, just asking each other, how am I doing stewarding you? How could I steward you better? Um, Vince thought we were perfect, just for the record. (laughs) Right? Okay. Don't ask Vince later. Um, But Sheila and I have at times, like in the evenings now, sometimes, it's a long day and we recognize it, and one of us will go to the other and say, okay, how can I steward you? But also it's that rhythm of going, how have I been doing? I want the opportunity for self-assessment, not just for my sake, for the sake of my wife, for my kids. Well, when we have leadership meetings here at church, it's an opportunity for me to do self-assessment because the leadership team gives me feedback on who I am and how either they're experiencing me or how other people are experiencing me. I need that kind of feedback. I like to live with blinders on if I at all can because it makes me look better. I need to see myself honestly. So yeah, are we taking this opportunity to see ourselves honestly? My third example is a number of years ago, well, this was a while ago now, I really wanted to be a traveling apologist. Uh, Ravi was kind of my hero, and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I I was really trying to organize a lot of things in my life to bring this about. And nothing seemed to open up. But all these other doors kept opening up. And I remember one particular moment where a friend of mine, I was, they knew what I wanted to do. And they're like, yeah, Anthony, I think that might not be the thing for you. Which was really hard to hear because I had a lot invested in that. But the thing was, he was right. I'm glad I didn't pursue that path. At that time, it felt like the world to me, like this is the thing. And in hindsight, I realized, uh, thank God I had some people around me who put some brakes on. Uh, I wasn't ready. Honestly, I, I don't think now I actually have a good personality fit for doing that kind of thing. I think had I been able to get into something like that, I think it would have probably been detrimental to me which would have meant it would have flowed out in ways that were negative for other people as well. That time of waiting, I chafed under that. 
But it turns out, actually, when my friend was very direct with me, Anthony, you do what's in front of you. Do what's in front of you well. Why don't you let God worry about the rest of it? It changed my mind, and, and I realized at that point that that waiting was God's mercy to me. I like the phrase, bloom where you were planted. Now, it might simply be a way of saying you have the opportunity wherever you are to be a faithful representation of Christ. We all have that opportunity. That's why, in a sense, there's no wasted time in the kingdom of God. Right now, where you are in life, you can be, I'll use language from the last couple weeks, an image, a temple, an icon. You can be those things right now. It might be, if you bloom where you're planted, that you actually find out, this is the place I actually want to bloom. Turns out I was restless for no reason. I'm where I'm supposed to be, and it just took a time of waiting to settle into that. It could be that you're learning how to flourish here so that when you are transplanted somewhere new, you've learned how to thrive in a less-than-ideal environment. I, I don't know the reasons for our waiting, but I know with all of those opportunities, we can grow. Now, this brings me then to another opportunity part. As Peter saw it, the reason God was patient, once again, the word long-suffering, suffer for a long time, is that he wants the world to come to him. A couple other verses in Scripture are very clear about this idea as well. From Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather that the wicked turn from their way and live, turn back, back from your evil ways. Ezekiel, once again, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Repent and live. First Timothy, God desires all men to be saved, all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is patient because he wants people to find him. Every day is a gift. So one more day to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like how Spurgeon once said, while I have prayed, come quickly, I often felt inclined to contradict myself and cry, yet tarry for a while, good Lord. Let mercy's day be lengthened. It's interesting. I hear a lot of conversation, or I have over the years, because I've grown up in the church. I've heard a lot of conversation about the longing for the return of the Lord. And the Bible tells us to long for that. For those who are followers of Jesus, it's a glorious day. But Peter here, I think, also shows us the balance of that is that we pray for the Lord to tarry because it's not all about us. It's about opportunity for those who are far from Christ to come near to Christ. And the longer the Lord tarries, the more opportunity that there is. So we hold this kind of tension in our lives that we long for the day when we are fully in the presence of God. But we also pray that God's long-suffering waits and tarries so that more can come to know him. There was a Congregationalist minister named Joseph Parker who was a friend of Spurgeon's. I was reading something from him this week, and it's a long quote, so stick with me, but I feel like it captures some very important things here about the heart of God here when it comes to opportunity. The Lord does not look upon the earth saying, let them do what they please. It's of no consequence. Right? By the way, this was written a while ago, so the language feels old. It is old. Riot as they may, slay one another, break the commandments as they may, all these waves of their tumult cannot dash even against the foot of my throne. 
No such speech does divine love make. The Lord spares the sinner because he wants to save him. Long-suffering means that God will suffer another day if thereby he may save the soul. He will suffer another century if thereby he can move the earth but one inch nearer heaven. Where do we ever give one another credit for great motives? What wonder then that we should withhold the ascription of great motives to God? If one amongst ourselves does anything great, we instantly ascribe a bad motive to him. We say, oh, he's giving that he can be seen to give. He's praying that he may be heard to pray. He's his own trumpeter. Well, what wonder then that men who ascribe poor, shallow, and vicious motives to one another, even in the matter of prayer, would treat the court of heaven with contempt and tell God to his face that he is slow. The true meaning is not that he is slow in the sense of moral indifference, but that he is long-suffering in the sense of fatherly patience. Ignorance is hasty. All God's incompleteness is desire at rest. Change the point and view and say, the Lord spares the sinner not for want of resources, but through long-suffering. The Lord is very pitiful and kind, plenteous in mercy and in patience. His mercy endures forever, and he continually says, I have no pleasure in the death of the sinner. I would that the wicked might turn from his way. The living one has pleasure in life. In death he finds no pleasure. We think that sin should be met by instantaneous punishment. That is our little cleverness. The Lord says, I will meet it with long-suffering. The Lord says, I will delay the stroke in the hope that the offender may begin to pray. The Lord is keeping up the heavens and earth that he may save the lost sinner. He keeps the firmament in its place and all the stars in their course for another century that the last obstinate heart may be touched, may surrender its arms, and may turn its rebellion into praise. And here's what lingers with me about that. Not just the reminder of God as a patient father whose heart is for all of us. But what I've been thinking about a lot this week is that if that's God's disposition, is that my disposition? I mean, how much do I long for and pray for the repentance of all? Because the Bible's clear. God takes no pleasure in de death of the wicked. God does not want anyone to be destroyed. God desires that all come to him. Uh, how Joseph Parker says that if God keeps the firmament in place and the stars in their course out of mercy for the lost, then how do I, as this icon of God, lead to that when people click on me? Sorry if you weren't here previous weeks. That's image from previous sermons. And I'll close with this. There's a couple things that stand out to me. Number one, I'd never desire death as a solution for evil because death ends opportunity. In fact, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked because I don't cheer the eternal loss of an eternal soul. That's actually cause for mourning. And I may be glad that the evil things that a person did will end, but that's different from being glad that that person finally got what was coming to them. I've, I've been thinking of this more as I've been seeing more and more Christians kind of wrestle with this with this issue, like what, what is my response when uh, Jeffrey Epstein died? Did I rejoice in the death of Jeffrey Epstein? If I'm understanding scripture correctly, God took no pleasure in his death. 
God desired Jeffrey Epstein to come to him. So while I rejoice that the evil and the horrible damage that was put into the world by him has ended, that's a different thing from rejoicing that his life is over. I ought to be mourning, I think, as a follower of Christ, that Jeffrey Epstein's opportunity is gone. And it's even made me consider what's my attitude when I see um, terrorists who, who have been brought to justice, they've been killed, going back to uh, bin Laden, Hussein, I forget who this latest person was. Am I gleeful in their death? I don't think it reflects the heart of God. I'm glad that whatever reign of terror they had is over because they brought a lot of evil into the world. I am glad that that was ended. But did my, did my heart mourn the loss of their opportunity? That an image bearer of God with an eternal soul has lost their chance. So the, the third point is that I long for the delay of Christ's return, even as I long for a new heaven and a new earth. Somehow I'm balancing both of those tensions. Uh, I find great hope that one day all that is bad will be undone. I find great hope that God has an age to come in which we will live as God intended for us to live, those who have given their lives to Christ. But that, that hope, I think, in my life has to be balanced with a longing that God delay so that those who do not yet know him and do not know Jesus have the opportunity to do that. And then finally, I commit myself to long-suffering. And by that, I mean a patient, loving, hopeful, and faithful presence in the world. Am I willing to take upon myself the heart of God for the world? If I'm going to be an image bearer, if I'm going to be an icon, when people click on me, do I take them to the heart of the God of the universe? This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.